Hello and welcome to LPO Offstage. I'm Yolanda Brown and this is the podcast that really gets to the bottom of what it's like to be in the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Today we're finding out how it feels to play alongside the orchestra as a soloist and on the flip side what it's like for the musicians in the orchestra to play with a soloist. So I'm here with violinist and pianist Julia Fisher who is the LPO's current artist in residence and I'm also joined by the leader of the orchestra, violinist Peter Schumann and viola player Richard Waters. A warm welcome to you all. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks, Yolanda. Now, Julia, can I start with you? What does it mean to be an orchestra's artist in residence? Well, first of all, actually, it's very flattering to a certain degree. It means that uh, the concerts I've played in the past were not so bad. So um, I'm allowed to play a little bit more. (laughs) And that's actually um, very nice because that gives you the opportunity to have a larger program Mm. and not just, you know, one violin concerto, but maybe a wider repertory and also the option of chamber music and getting to know other musicians from the orchestra better. And um, so, yeah, it's something I enjoy very much. And where does that relationship come about? How did this partnership come to be? I think I've been playing with the orchestra now for almost 18 years. So most of my grown-up life. And it actually started with the Elga Concerto, which we are going to play uh, this season as well. I played it the first time in December 2004. And uh, that must have been my debut with the orchestra. Since then, we have played so, so many concerts. I went through three music directors already. So. Wow, you're part of the family. That's good. <laughs> uh, it's, it's lovely here on LPL stage. It does feel like a big family. So I'm so glad that you're here with us. I'm really interested about this relationship of being a soloist and also directing the orchestra. Mm-hmm. So when you're directing, there's no conductor. You are leading all of the musicians on the stage. What is that responsibility like does does it feel freeing to you not having a conductor there to a certain degree it does of course yes and i i usually have the feeling that it is also nice for the orchestra to have a change because um usually what happens is that we haven't yet started rehearsing so we i don't know what's going to happen next (laughs) week but what usually happens that after a few moments of uh, getting to know each other is from a different angle Musicians from the orchestra tend to get more responsible for what's actually going to happen. So it actually turns more into chamber music. It's not that much that I'm leading, but we are actually more discussing and um, finding better solutions, good solutions. And that's actually very interesting to then get to know the musicians from the orchestra differently because they start talking more. So I can then get to know their musical ideas better. And I enjoy doing it very much. Of course, there are moments when maybe a conductor would be useful, but... um, we will try to overcome those situations. And Peter, what is it like for you? You're used to, as an orchestra, having the conductor there. So when Julia comes in or when a soloist comes in and directs the orchestra, what is the difference, the main difference that you feel from not having the conductor there? Well, in this sort of repertoire, like Mozart concerti, I think the responses may be more immediate. There's no middleman. You don't want to have too many masters on stage either. In Big repertoire, certainly conductors are extremely important, but in this repertoire it's, it becomes more chamber music and we respond more to the body language of somebody who's doing exactly the same thing as what we're doing, uh, not using a baton. We listen more carefully. Instead of watching a conductor, we are more solely focused on the soloist. And in a sense, um, every principle becomes sort of a leader at certain times because 
my ro role as the leader is also to adapt and it's not set in stone. I don't do the same thing all the time. There, there are times where the principal viola would become the leader or where the cello section's got the motor going and we follow them or sometimes we follow where, where the theme is. So everybody becomes important in that sense and everybody's sound becomes more important because usually it's for smaller groups also where we would play without conductor. And we don't do that very often. Actually, to my memory, the last time we did play without a conductor was when I played the Four Seasons here about three, four years ago without a conductor. And then uh, maybe 15 years ago, we recorded all the Mozart concerti with Anne-Sophie Mutter, also without conductor. But other than that, we don't get the opportunity to do this very often. So I'm really looking forward to this. It all sounds really exciting. I can see smiles around the table here and you're nodding away there, Richard, as well. What do you like about when a soloist comes in and is directing the orchestra? Well, I think um, the kind of increased responsibility for the concept of the music. Like there's not someone to just kind of be like, OK, I'm always here, always beating away, ready for anything that might be kind of a little bit wonky here or there. You know, we have to take that responsibility ourselves. We don't really play differently if um, there is a conductor or if there isn't, or a director or isn't, but the responsibility is more with us in that situation. And so then, Julia, what are some of the pros and cons of directing? Because I love this idea of discourse and discussion and what does it feel like, where will it go? But at some point, we've got to start playing this thing, you know. So does the final choice lie with you as you're directing the piece? Uh, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> There are things which, which are open to discussions and, of course, there are things which are not. I think the leader has to give the frame. So, of course, I have a general idea of how the, I want Tchaikovsky serenade to sound. It doesn't necessarily mean that I will tell the celli which bowings to take or if the phrase has to go to the second bar or the third bar. I mean, that's open to discussion. I think it's basically the architecture which I have to lay and then how the rooms are going to be furniture um, it's up to the musicians <laughs> no well it's amazing to hear though because I mean you've got so many eyeballs looking at you yeah I mean what sort of preparation does it take for you personally to get in that mindset of I'm gonna take control of this situation this leading an orchestra is is not the same as being a soloist it's something completely different you cannot just as a soloist think that you can take the chair of the concertmaster and lead a piece and you're going to do the same as in a solo concerto. it totally doesn't work like that it all started when I did a tour with, in 2004 with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields and Neville Marina with Beethoven and Sibelius Violin Concertos. And after the tour, Neville asked me to do a tour with the Academy leading them. And at that age, in 2006 was the tour, so I was 22 at the wow. times of the tour. And that was the first time that I was leading an orchestra. And I'm pretty sure that I didn't do a very good job, but... I had people in the orchestra who would actually come after each rehearsal and tell me what I did good and what I did bad. Mm. So they would tell me where I have to lead more, where I can give them more freedom. They were really teaching me. And I tried to learn as much as possible from that tour. It was a tough program. I played, we did Shostakovich Chamber Symphony for my first leading project. Maybe that was slightly over the top. But during that week, I think I learned a lot. And I've been leading orchestra since then. And of course, each time I probably get another experience out of it. And I really enjoy, I have to say, 
working with conductors. I really enjoy that in the sense, not necessarily in the first half, but actually in the second half. I really enjoy on tour, going to the hall, listening to the symphony, discussing afterwards with the conductor why he conducted the way he conducted. I'm not sure that the conductors actually enjoy that very much, <laughs> but those are very interesting experiences for me. And uh, from that, I actually take my knowledge to then go and lead an orchestra because I learn a lot from these talks. You need that persona as you walk onto the stage and you have the orchestra there to know, for them to know that they are going to be looked after. They can trust you to lead them in the way that they should go. If you walked on and you didn't seem sure, then, you know, you would keep getting those, oh, you could do this better, you could do that better. Well, if you become an artist, you have to know why you become an artist. And you can only become an artist if you want know what you want to say. And you can maybe change what you want to say, but you have to know what you want to say <laughs> the night you go on stage. I mean, it's not possible to go in front of 80 professional musicians. You know, you have to have that in mind that whenever as a soloist I'm in front of an orchestra, I have 80 people in the orchestra who have played the piece at least as often as I have played it and know it from a different angle. And the first violin section may have played it in the second and the seconds in the first. And some of the first have played it as a soloist. So they certainly know the piece at least as good as I do. So there must be a reason why I'm standing in front of them. Yes. I must know what I want to say with the piece also already when I go into the first rehearsal. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. So, Julia, I have to ask you then, is there a, a piece that you really like to bring to an orchestra to collaborate together and then perform as the director of, or the leader of the orchestra? No, I, I play all of this chamber orchestra repertory. I really like all the serenades, Tchaikovsky, Silks, Dvorak. I, I like them all. In spring, I'm also doing leading an orchestra with Frank Bridge uh, variations. I, oh. I enjoy them very much. And yeah, sorry. That's, that's <laughs> a tough one. On that one. That's a tough one. <laughs> it is a tough one. Yeah. Um, so... Um, yeah, I enjoy all of these the entire repertory very much. But I'm always trying when I'm in residence and allowed to do some chamber music with the musicians from an orchestra. I always try to program the Bruch Octet because the Bruch Octet is so unknown because it was actually not published for 75 years after Bruch's death. So it's it has been published only like 20 years ago, a little bit more than 20, I think. So most of the musicians don't know it. And it's one of the most ingenious pieces written in, in that period. And especially for Octet, you always program the Mendelssohn Octet, which is fantastic and I love playing it. But the Bruch is just equally beautifully. And um, I found musicians usually uh, that they are very grateful to get to know the piece. So how are you feeling about the chamber music element of working with Julia? Great. The Brook, yeah, it's, as she said, I, I didn't know it. And I played a few Octet concerts, but again, as you said, you know, always Mendelssohn, always Shostakovich, always. It's always interesting when you see that something's been published so late after a composer's death. Where was it? You know, was it just found in a chest in an attic somewhere? There's so many things seem to turn up years later. And it's just a really fascinating work and a really beautiful piece as well. We try to come fresh to pieces that we played before all the time, but it actually to be genuinely fresh for something is really, is really, really rewarding. Do you feel the same way, Peter, when, when a piece comes that you may not get to play regularly? What is the excitement? Excitement is what I'm feeling around this table right now, but what is the feeling that you get when these new pieces come up? Even though I'm an incredible fan of Bruch, I love Bruch. I think there are a lot of his pieces 
not played, which deserves to be played. And I didn't know this octet either. And um, with Julia's permission, I'm going to, after this concert, actually learn the first violin part because I want to <laughs> play it many, many more times. Yes. I don't want to wait only for the next occasion to play second violin with her. But I have to say, for me, it's an incredible honor to play next to Julia in chamber music. I, I still can't believe it. Uh, I will believe it tomorrow morning at 10 <laughs> o'clock when we have our first rehearsal. But I love, love this piece. All three movements, every one is a jewel. Wow. So I'm really looking forward to it. When there's no conductor who can then, you know, bring different sections of the orchestra out because they're facing you, the soloist still has to play. Richard, what is it like then in terms of making sure that you're striking the right balance in your section? It's kind of a phenomenon in violas because um, we don't tend to project as well. So in my ideal world, the viola section should basically always be told to shut up. <laughs> um, because actually we have to play with that little bit more of that carrying edge Otherwise, it just doesn't project, especially also when we sit a little bit further back on the stage, even with the music stands, the conductor right in front of us and these sections either side of us. There's a lot of obstacles that absorb your sound along the way. So you really have to kind of work hard to project, especially in that register. So I found, you know, having done a lot of chamber music growing up and things like this before joining an orchestra, um, if you're not really being told to play quieter as a violist, then you're probably not projecting enough. Um, so... <laughs> When you learn to control that kind of projecting sound, then you get used to developing that within an ensemble or with an orchestra. Or, and you have to kind of learn that what you're hearing under your, trust what you're hearing under your ear, whether you're hearing that little bit of edge on the sound that doesn't actually go further than the front row mm. or maybe the edge of the stage even. But then the, the rest of the sound can kind of be carried on the back of that, to the back of the hall. And this way, you know, you can play very softly, but with a real core and a real personality in the sound that can actually go much further than... You know, we have to think about this a lot, you know, uh, with the string length on the viola and it's kind of strange uh, proportions. It's not ideally suited to projecting in this way. But now we have, you know, a more modernised approach to playing and uh, more violinistic in many ways. I actually had violin teachers most of the way through my studying. So, as you know, Peter said about preparing, going through with the score and marking up the part, especially when you have limited time to rehearse. It's really important to know who's, who needs to be driving, who needs to be heard. And also kind of working out the priorities of the textures. It's not always the case that just because there's a melody going on there and the drive is here that you shouldn't be heard. And so then, Peter, is it the same for the violins? Do you have to almost pull back a bit? Because, you know, it's such a large section and you don't have the conductor there to sort of help with the balance. How, do, how does the violin section control their balance? Playing chamber orchestra things or chamber music? Like, I think orchestra. I think orchestra. orchestra. Well... You know, when you do this day in, day out, we know where we are important and where we're not important. And you sort of get a feel for how much you should give or, or not. We're in the privileged position that we play higher things, which project easier than the diesel instruments like violas. Sorry, Richard. I prefer the uh, term engine room. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering when the digs were going to come out. That's good, that's good. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, so we, we tend to project uh, better. With the same token, we have to practice more than you because it's harder to read these high, higher notes. We have more notes. I, 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 would, I would try to get into a different subject now. Referee Julia has said move on. No, no, but it, it comes down to, you know, this is what we do. And, you know, but also depending on in which hall you play, things sound different. So you have to adapt the whole time. It's, uh, that's what we do is adapting every day, you know. Mm. Uh, same as, uh, as we discussed earlier about interpretation and so on. We play a Brahms symphony with one conductor and a couple of months later with the same symphony with another one and it would be 
utterly different, uh, sometimes completely opposite uh, approaches to it. And we have to adapt and we have to do it convincingly and we have to play as well as we can, as beautiful as we can, even though we might hate some of the the ideas or completely disagree. But that's part of what it is of uh, being an orchestral musician. We have to serve, but also we have to remember it's also our concert. Um, so you need to find the balance in, yes. in all of that. Julia, do you feel that you have to then listen differently when you're directing? Because once you're in performance mode, you're focusing on where you're projecting and what you want to tell the audience. But um, in terms of how you hear the orchestra... Are you no, also, you switch off from that after a while? I, 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 I wouldn't say that I would hear differently because even as a soloist, I'm trying to uh, listen to the entire orchestra. I'm not just listening to myself. So also as a soloist, I want to know who's important and it might not necessarily always be me. Also in chamber music and in if it's a recital program or in a big orchestra, I always try to listen to the entire group. Let's talk Elgar for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a performance coming up in April, which everyone's very excited about. Um, <laughs> but how do you feel about it? What's it like playing and memorizing such a long concerto? Like 45, 55 minutes? Yeah, it's 48 or something like that. <laughs> but I, to be fair, I'm not playing like eight of it. So, oh, oh, eight of it. Okay, eight, eight that's good. It's, it's only the orchestra, you know, playing. It's it's a it, the orchestra part is huge in this piece, and the violin part is huge too. But it's not, uh, for example, more to memorize than in a Brahms concerto or in a Beethoven concerto. I don't think it makes a huge difference. And it's nice always to come back and play the Aga with the LPO because it is the first concert I played here. So I always have this memory. And uh, we have played it on tour together also in Asia. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And when we've taken deep dives into pieces of music here on LPO offstage, that idea of emotion coming out through music really does come through. Richard, when we speak about this concerto and the emotion that comes through, how does it affect you? Well, I think... Um the main role we have really as musicians is we're trying to recreate the emotional kind of state of a composer at the time that they were writing a piece, you know, whether that's a very joyous emotion or very intense emotion, or very complex, actually, like the Elgar, in comparison to um, a lot of concerto orchestral parts. It's much less transparent writing. It's much more prescriptive. There's a huge amount of information in the yeah, music. much too much, actually. <laughs> yes, yes. Actually, and it's akin to, I remember playing an Inescu quartet once and, and like every bar has huge amounts of information whether it's like poco crescendo within a cellarando and then like different articulations over every note it's this kind of level of prescriptiveness that he really started to write in it's kind of very complex style so in terms of as a kind of you know emotional interpretation of that kind of level of complexity kind of lends itself to your thinking in terms of interpreting it it's much more thickly orchestrated than something like the cello concerto is and much more prescriptive and you know it's a very intense and complex piece for me the elga concerto is the end of the romantic period mm. i have the feeling what he tried to do is to put everything from the romantic period into this one piece because after that you know the 20th century really took off and new style of music and new style of composing and this Elga is somehow this last planet of the romantic period that was written so I think that's why it's so overloaded with information I'm not even sure that all of the information wasn't really necessary for a good musician because some of the information are just 
yeah, a little animato and so a little bit more fluent and then a little slow again, which you would automatically do if you if you just understand the music. So I crossed out a lot of things <laughs> and then I just learned it. And then I saw if I'm doing it anyway. And then I can have a look at it again because otherwise it's impossible to learn it. Julia, I wanted to touch on the idea of cadenzas, especially um, with Mozart. What's been your journey with cadenzas along the way and how do you feel about them now? Well, of course, I was brought up in a very conservative way. So I learned the the cadenzas, which are mandatory to learn for the concertos. And um, then when I recorded the concerti 2006, 2007, Jakob Kreisberg made me wrote my own cadenzas. And so I've played my own cadenzas since then. They've changed slightly. They have, sometimes I come back to ideas I had at that time. Then I have new ideas today. But I think for Mozart Concerti, since the cadenzas we are usually using are the ones by Josef Joachim, for example. Um, those are violinists from a completely different period. It doesn't make sense to me that we would play cadenzas from somebody who did not live at the time of Mozart, but neither lives at my time. Uh, so I think it makes sense to either you find something from that time or you have to go and write something yourself today. So I make all my students write cadenzas for their Mozart concertis. Some are good, some are not so great, but um, <laughs> I think everybody should at least try it at some point. And even if you don't perform them in the end, you have to know how to do it. And for those of us listening, listening in on the classical music world, can you explain to me what a cadenza is and why you'd need to write your own? A cadenza, the idea of the composer was to give the soloist a moment for solo shining. So Mozart didn't write any cadenzas, neither for his piano concertos nor for his violin concertos. So there's only a fermata and you can do whatever you want to. And the idea is, of course, to reflect to the movement you've just played. But also the idea was to show off. I mean, that is a part of it, to show what you can do with the subjects and with the themes. And you can have it very small, you can have it very long. Beethoven wrote cadenzas for all his piano concertos, funny enough. So we do know what he wrote for those pieces, which is approximately the same period, just a little later. And also Beethoven wrote, for example, a cadenza for the Mozart D minor piano concerto. So we can see how Beethoven, what he did at that time for, for a Mozart concerto. And I find that very fascinating, very interesting. But there are actually no real rules. I mean, it would even be possible to play something completely modern in a Mozart concerto in the style how we compose today and then come back to Mozart. It would be possible. It's not that there's a law written that you can't do that. And so in the actual performance, the orchestra would stop and this is a time for the soloist to to show peacock style what they do. (laughs) Um, But then is it always pre-written or can it be improvised? It can be improvised by people who can improvise. I can't. Yeah. And would the soloist play the cadenza during rehearsal, Richard, or is it something that sometimes they might keep as a surprise to even wow the orchestra as well on the night? It's really at their discretion. Um, Generally, I'd say that we tend to hear it most of the time in the general rehearsal on the day of the concert that is sometimes coming out of cadenza is not always the easiest thing for the conductor and orchestra one of the my favorite things listening to cadenza is always especially if it's one that's less known or one that is has been written by the performer is that it's not necessarily so well in the ears of the conductor who may have done the piece many times before but with different cadenzas and it can be very entertaining to see how we're going to get out of this together (laughs) Uh, and you know and and sometimes you see performers so in a few kind of 
false leads with with the way that they've written in the cadenza and yeah, you, you, you might feel like you're going to start when, a bit when earlier. you need to pick up your instrument yeah. to get ready we've, we've all done it before you know yeah. where we pick up our instrument because we think there's uh, a the uh, solo has started trilling yeah. so we think it's near the end of the cadenza <laughs> and we all sit up with our instrument and then we're like no. we're very slowly <laughs> put our instruments back down when we realize we're only halfway through well, my worst fear is that the conductor is just going to at the last minute pick up his baton and okay here we go yeah. and we're all still sitting with our instruments yeah. down but I've experienced yeah. actually being a in the audience, sitting in the first row and seeing the conductor giving a false cue in the middle of a Beethoven piano concerto cadenza. And unfortunately, I was just so in shock that I screamed, no! (laughs) 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 But it didn't help. The timpani still started, boom, boom, boom. And then they realized it's wrong. And yeah, it was one of my least favorite moments. (laughs) Everybody needs you in their audience there, just to make sure we're coming at the same time. I I think it's one of the most... It must, at least it seems to me, from within the orchestra, that it's one of the most difficult aspects of conducting is to bring the orchestra in at the end of a complex cadenza or at the end of a a section like that. I can remember a few awkward Beethoven piano concerto moments where it's very, very easy to miss an entrance if there's kind of any sort of doubt in anyone's mind. And it's so one of those moments that's so easy to second guess, whether it's conductor, soloist or anyone here. It's very easy to just suddenly find yourself leaping into action i'll be i'll be a keen spotter now whenever i hear a cadenza are they ready that's really good uh, julia what's it like teaming up with another soloist as well we've spoken here about sort of you coming in leading the orchestra having those discussions what about when there is another soloist with you it's, that's another set of negotiations i guess that has to happen yeah i have to deal with it <laughs> <laughs> no i i very much enjoy it symphonia contratanta i've done with niels mankemeyer very often he's also the viola player in my quartet and um, so we play a lot together. We know each other for 20 years and we know each other inside out. And I think if you work with people over such a long time, it only works if there's the same kind of curiosity for music in the person. Mm -hmm. So if I have really trouble working with people, even if I know them for a very long time, if they are satisfied, I'm just never satisfied. I'm never satisfied after concert. I might be happy, but I'm not satisfied. I'm already thinking while I'm I'm on stage what I will do different next time and which bowing didn't work or which fingering or which crescendo was wrong or I'm constantly thinking about it. And Niels and I played Contratante last time, I think last summer. And uh, we, we still haven't figured out if we start down or up or we just don't know. It's just <laughs> a discussion we will have for probably for the rest of our lives. And it depends on how the orchestra plays, depends on the hall, it depends on how we feel. I only play with him. And still, I, over every note in my part, actually, I have down bow, up bow, down bow. It's, it's just crossed out many times and because we are constantly trying to find a better solution. For you, Richard and Peter, what are some of the highlights and the things that you love about a soloist coming in to the LPO and sort of leading you on this form of exploration, Peter? Personally, what I enjoy very much is the privilege I have to be sitting so close to the soloist that I can really observe. I'm one of these weird people who just love to observe how others do it. And uh, and Yulia is just a perfect example of where the hands just move in, in with such perfection and precision without tension and the control of it all, the flexibility of it all. And it's so beautiful to see and I try to analyze 
how can I um, help myself through that? So, uh, and, and even watching cellists, how the bow, the curve of the bow, which is then opposite of the violin, only because the instrument is turned around, but it comes down to the same principle, how to, how to get a straight bow, how do they do it? And, uh, and just to compare, uh, just and watching sounding point, watching things like that, I love that. And to also hear uh, soloists, uh, knowing that they are playing also for the back row of the hall, it's got to project there, but the quality what comes out from so near me and how, yeah, I'm just fascinated by, by this and I, I, it's a huge privilege for me to be so close Absolutely. to all, all these soloists. Absolutely. Thank you. And Richard, for you, what's one of the highlights? I mostly echo what Peter said, you know, I think it's an incredible opportunity to learn, keeping that curiosity burning and also just trying to see what you might be able to change on yourself, or what you might be very fortunate to see something that you might be thinking about yourself replicated in a, in a of course, more refined way. But, you know, I, I, it can be really reassuring sometimes if you're, if you're working very technically or trying to improve all the time, as we all do, to see something that you might be working on in a soloist and see the kind of element of refinement and control that they bring to that, that element of their playing. And then being able to kind of use that as a tutorial almost, mm. if that makes sense. And Julia, I know it must be lovely to hear people speak about you in this sense. But what is it like for you and what's really unique about being a soloist with the LPO? I have to say that I know very, very few orchestras in the world which have this kind of professionalism. I've never encountered any program with the LPO where the orchestra was not prepared or not willing to do the best. And when you're on tour and you play 10 concerts in a row, you know, we are not no saints. It is tough to travel and uh, you don't sleep enough. And then you have, you know, the group of people who get sick usually. <laughs> and uh, so, and you change the venue every night and, and uh, maybe you don't like the food in the country or whatever. I mean, you, you know, you're missing home. I don't know. So it, it's, it is a tough thing to actually be on the spot every night at eight o'clock and to your full, not just potential, but full concentration. And it's something about the LPO which I find absolutely fascinating that they are always giving 100% and I've never had actually a bad concert with them. Well, we will end on that beautiful note. I agree full-heartedly with you and just meeting these musicians and hearing about them and then to hear how you can come into the family. It is lovely and the passion has really invigorated me. I know the audience are looking forward to the programme this month, but also in April as well. And all the best to you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Julia Fisher, Richard Waters and Peter Schoolman for revealing what it is like to play repertoire with solo artists and what it's like to be the soloist playing alongside the LPO. Please get in touch using the hashtag OffstagePod and thank you so much for listening. Do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage. I'll see you then. (laughs) 